like Ben said, my name is David. Uh, excited to be here and to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, let us begin with prayer. O oh, sovereign Lord, the one who has no beginning and no end, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, uh, we give you praise for your ways are perfect. Great are all your works. They are studied by all who delight in them. That as you have planned, so shall it be. As you have purposed, so shall it stand. If you have purposed something, who will annul it? If your hand is stretched out, who will turn it back? O sovereign Lord, all things in your hands by your plan. And yet we confess to you today that uh, we often turn from the way in which you say is good, we turn unto our own ways. We lean upon our own understanding. We seek to take our lives into our own hands and to be the sovereign and king over it. And yet we just give you thanks that through Jesus, you have made a way for that sin to be atoned for. You have made a way for our eternal suffering to be taken away because of the suffering of Christ on the cross. Something that you say was your plan from the very beginning, that Christ would be crucified and through him we could be reconciled to you. So Lord, today we ask that you would give us desires to follow you wherever that is, wherever you would lead. We pray that you would give us peace in the midst of our trials. We pray that you'd give us joy in our suffering. We pray that you'd give us perseverance in the midst of our persecutions. We pray that you would give us continual repentance of our sin and a running unto you and to the cross to see those sins forgiven and wiped away. Grant us the newness of life that Doug talked about, the Holy Spirit change within us that is evident to all around, that we may walk in the good works that you have prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And so we come now to your word. We long to see the things that are in the scriptures concerning yourself. Uh, we long to have our hearts burn within us as the scriptures are opened. And so we ask, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever read the Bible and not understood what you were reading? <laughs> yes. I think all of us at some point have read something in the Bible and we are like, I don't know what this means. What is this all about? We don't understand it. It's, it's difficult to understand. There's hard passages. There's things that are difficult uh, to interpret. But that's one thing. But have you ever read the Bible and you understood what it said. You understood what it meant, but you actually had difficulty understanding how that could be. It's not that you had difficulty comprehending what the Bible was saying, but difficulty comprehending how could that actually be? How could that be true? See, because when we read the Bible, there are difficult things in it, but there's also 
things that are very clear, but yet at the same time are very challenging because they challenge our assumptions. They challenge our current beliefs. They challenge the things that we, uh, the, the way that we see the world, and the Bible pushes back against those things. And we have to wrestle with, is this, is this true? Is this actually right? I've always thought that it was this way. And I, I mention this because uh, in our text today, as we, we continue through the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus speaks to his disciples. He tells them something that's very plain and very simple. Something that's not hard to understand, and yet, Luke makes very clear, the disciples do not understand. They do not comprehend, and they really wrestle with whether or not this is true. And so if you have your Bible, open it with me uh, to Luke uh, chapter 18. Uh, We're just going to be looking at uh, four verses today, verses 31 to 34. And uh, what I want to do is we're just going to read through the text, and then I want to just highlight three things that we learn uh, from the text. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, uh, we'll read through it. Uh, together. Luke chapter 18, uh, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he, that is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. That is God's word to us this morning. So like I said, three things that I just want to highlight that we learned from this text, and we'll jump right into it. The first one is this, that wrong assumptions can inhibit our understanding Wrong assumptions can inhibit our understanding. Uh, We see in the text, Jesus, he uh, is speaking to a a lot of disciples and he takes his 12 closest uh, aside to speak to them directly. And uh, he tells them basically that he's going to suffer, he's going to be killed, and on the third day rise. And this isn't the first time Jesus has told them uh, this. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, this is the third time, maybe even fourth, depending on how you count it, that Jesus has explained this to the disciples. And yet they're, they're still confused. They, they, they still don't understand. What's unique here, though, in all the times that Jesus has spoken to his disciples, uh, this is the only time we have recorded in the Gospels that Jesus tells his disciples that he will suffer and die according to what the prophet said would be accomplished, according to what the Old Testament scriptures would speak uh, of Jesus. But again, the disciples don't understand it, and Luke makes this really clear in the passage. If you have it in front of you, you can can see there's three different ways that Luke tells us the disciples don't understand. He says, they understood none of these things, the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. He he really wants us to know they didn't get it. But again, it it was pretty clear. Look, I'm going to go suffer, die, and rise again. It's not a hard thing to understand. They could repeat back what Jesus said. But the problem was their understanding of how could this be? See, they had different assumptions about what Jesus and his life and his ministry was to be about. Uh, We'll look back at the very first time Jesus told his disciples this. Uh, Matthew records it in his gospel, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus speaking to his disciples. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem 
He must suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So again, exactly the same thing that he's told them here. But look at Peter's response. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. It's kind of like Peter saying, Jesus, you don't need to be so discouraged. Like, don't worry. No, no, we'll go to Jerusalem. Everything's going to be okay. Like, you don't need to worry. Jesus, how could that happen to you? You are a king. No, no, don't say that you're going to die. But, but look at Jesus' response. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There's lots we could unpack there, but the idea that Jesus is saying is saying, Peter, you've got a certain way of thinking about it. A, a way of thinking about things the way man thinks. But you're not thinking the way God thinks. You see, the, the common idea at that time, the prevailing view of the Messiah, the Christ figure who would come, was that he would be a conquering king. And indeed, Jesus was to be a conquering king. But he was to be a king who conquers through suffering. And, and that idea, it just didn't fit with the, the disciples' framework. They had no way to fit that into their idea of this conquering Messiah king. And so they, they didn't understand. And I think we, we understand this from our own, own life too. Like when we uh, are talking with someone, sometimes we have uh, certain assumptions, we have a certain framework of how we understand things will be. And when someone says something, they, they could say it very clearly. And yet we could still not really understand what they mean. Uh, this especially happens uh, even as we read the Bible, as we hear the Bible being preached. I, I knew a pastor, and uh, he uh, preached a sermon one time all about the grace of God. And the whole point of the sermon was basically that uh, we do nothing on our own to earn God's salvation. There is nothing that we need to do. There's nothing that we need to uh, achieve for God in order for him to, to grant us salvation, in order for him to save us. It was all done by Jesus. It's this idea of free grace, undeserved, unmerited. You do nothing. He preaches this sermon. Great sermon. A guy comes up to him after the sermon. He says, great sermon, pastor. He's like, oh, okay. I wonder, what's he going to say? He says, great sermon, pastor. It's like I always say, God helps those who help themselves. And he's like, whoa, no, no, no. That was the exact opposite of what I've just preached a whole sermon about. It is not that God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. We, we can't. That's the whole point. And yet for this guy, he had in his mind that we need to do things in order for God to help us. That was the assumption, the, the framework that he came into that sermon with. And so even though the message of free grace was being proclaimed, it just went right over his head. He just missed it. Because we have these assumptions. And these, these wrong assumptions can inhibit our understanding of, of who God is and what he is saying. I, I've even seen this in my own life with a, a friend that I have. Uh, he's a Muslim. And so uh, we go out uh, every once in a while. We go for coffee and we talk. And we often talk about religious things. He loves to talk about it. I love to talk about it. It's great. And so we, we talk. But uh, from his point of view, uh, you know what? He doesn't have a problem with religion. He, he has a problem with people who aren't religious, but religion in general is good. And it doesn't really matter to him what religion you have. 
whether you are is you know follow Islam, whether you uh, follow Judaism, uh, Christianity, it's all good. You know, in his words, he says we're all people of the book. You know, and we're we're all seeking God, and we'll all be in paradise together. And so I I, I talk with him often, and I say you know, but the the Bible actually says something very different. It says that Jesus is the the only way to the Father. You know, you you say that Jesus is a prophet. I say he's God. You say that God will forgive you because of the things that you have done in your life and you've lived well for him. I say that God will forgive me not because of anything I've done, because I haven't done anything to deserve. There's some key differences, which I think affects whether someone goes to heaven or hell. And even though I explain this clearly and I say, I, I think my religion teaches something very different than yours, he says, you know what? We're all people of the book. You know what, David? It, it's good. I'm, I'm really glad that religions can all work together. I'm really glad that we can all seek God together. So he has in his mind a framework that religion, in general, is there to make us better people, to live our life before God. And whether you do that as a Christian uh, uh, or a Muslim, God will be pleased with you and, and you will get into heaven. So there, there is, there's these assumptions that inhibit our understanding of what God is saying. And I think that happens to us as well, just generally when we read the Bible. There, there's things, like I said at the beginning, they're hard for under understand, even though they're very clear. They're very clear teachings in the Bible, but we have a very different framework. And maybe that, those assumptions, that framework that comes from our upbringing, it, it maybe comes from the culture around us, it maybe becomes from certain ideas that we have about who God is or about who we are. And yet when we come to the Bible, the Bible often challenges that very framework. It's, it's not that we don't understand the Bible because it's not clear. It's often that we under, don't understand because we have assumptions that we are not willing to let go of. We, we have things that we think must be true. We say, well, how could that be true? Because this is true. But the Bible wants to say, no, no, your assumption is wrong. You need a new assumption. You need a new framework in order to properly understand the Bible. And that's what's happening here in our text. The disciples have an idea. This is what the Messiah should be. And Jesus is trying to say over and over and over again, no, no, your assumption about what the Messiah is is wrong. And that's why you don't understand that I need to suffer and die. And so Jesus, here in this text, he points them, though, back to the Old Testament. He wants to point them to the prophets and all that has been written about him before. This idea that Jesus being mocked, spit on, flogged, dying, and rising again is, is actually been the plan from the very beginning. And if you look through the Old Testament, there are various passages we could point to that talk, that, that prophesy that Jesus would be spit on, that there would be flogging, uh, that even uh, he would rise again on the third day. There, there's very clear passages which point to that. Uh, but I, I think there is something bigger and, and more obvious that the disciples were missing. See, it wasn't the specifics the disciples were hung up on. It wasn't like, oh, okay, you're going to get spit on? You're going to get mocked? Oh, where is the verse, Jesus? No, the thing that they were struggling with was not the specifics. It was the idea that he would need to suffer, that he would need to be killed. That is the thing that they were missing. And Jesus continually points back to this fact that there is a pattern 
and a a prediction and a looking forward that this Messiah figure would need to suffer before he is exalted. Uh, Jesus uh, tells his disciples that himself. Uh, Just a few weeks, uh, months later perhaps, when Jesus has risen from the dead, uh, it's the day of the resurrection. He's risen from the dead and all of his disciples don't really know what to do. They've gone in various places, and two of them are leaving the city of Jerusalem. They're headed to a, a city called Emmaus, and they're, they're walking along the road. And as they walk along the road, there's a guy who comes up beside them and begins to ask them some questions. It's Jesus. They don't know. It, it's kind of hidden from them. They don't recognize Jesus. And so he begins to ask them and say, oh, uh, what's been uh, happening in the city? And they say, you don't know? You don't know there's this guy, Jesus. He's been delivered up to the Romans. He was crucified. Everybody's talking about it. And now, even some of our, our women from, from our, our group, they're saying they've seen an empty tomb. They've, they think Jesus is actually alive. And, and look at what Jesus says in, in response uh, to that in, in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. This is Jesus' response. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. A few things to, to see here. Uh, the first thing is that, you know, the disciples, they don't believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But when Jesus rebukes them, he doesn't rebuke them because they didn't believe the women that told them. He wasn't like, what? What? The women saw the empty tomb. They saw the angels. How can you not believe that, that Jesus is alive? Jesus grounds his rebuke in the fact that they didn't believe the prophets. He's saying, yeah, 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 you could have heard the woman, but you should have seen this. This is the pattern. It's all throughout the Old Testament. How can you not understand that the Christ must suffer and die? Jesus, this man you're talking about, has suffered and then been raised. Do you not see that as the prediction or the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has said? And so Jesus goes through the whole Old Testament, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and and explains to them the things concerning himself. So there is this pattern, this pattern that we see in the Old Testament, this idea that the Messiah figure would need to suffer and then be exalted. Uh, scholar and pastor uh, James Hamilton, he, he puts it this way, talking about this pattern we see in the Old Testament. He says, um, there are those through whom God means to establish salvation. Salvation kind of uh, in, in whatever sense, whether that's deliverance from some specific people or deliverance from famine, deliverance from what... Through, those through whom God means to establish salvation first suffer rejection and persecution before being unexpectedly exalted to reign. And so this brings us to the second point I want us to see from the text today. And that is, what was true of others will be true of Jesus. What was true of others in the Old Testament, those people, those deliverers that have brought salvation, that will be true of Jesus. There is a pattern that is repeated that we are meant to see uh, it escalate and climax in the person of Jesus. And I want you to see that this is not um, some kind of system or something that people have kind of come up with and kind of imposed on the Old Testament. 
But in fact, this is something that the uh, early church and the New Testament authors saw in the Old Testament as the way in which we should read it. Uh, we'll look, uh, we can look lots of places, but we'll look at uh, Stephen. If you know Stephen, Stephen was the first martyr of the church. He was killed for his faith. And uh, in uh, Acts chapter 6 and 7, uh, Stephen is brought before the council and uh, given an opportunity to defend himself. And he gives this big, long speech that basically goes through the whole history of God's people. And uh, as he's going through the, the history, he, he highlights this pattern of rejection and exaltation. So I want to just show you a few things uh, from his speech. Uh, he begins by talking about Abraham and the promises God has made that, that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And then he begins to talk about Joseph. Uh, and um, Joseph was, of course, uh, one of the 12 brothers of Israel. Uh, he was rejected by his brothers, thrown into a pit. And then he was uh, sold into Egypt as a slave, unjustly put in prison for adultery. And then he was given uh, an opportunity to interpret Pharaoh's dream. And then Pharaoh made him uh, kind of the right-hand man in Egypt. And so Stephen writes this in Acts chapter uh, 7. He says, And the patriarchs, uh, meaning the brothers of Joseph, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So th th there's a pattern. Joseph was rejected, but then exalted. He talks about Moses. Uh, this is what he says uh, about Moses in, in verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, God's people rejected Moses as a leader, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. So even Moses rejected by his people. And then this person who was rejected, a shepherd out in the wilderness for 40 years, God brought in to be the ruler and redeemer of his people. Stephen mentions King David. Uh, king David was anointed uh, to be king, but was not king right away. He suffered intense persecution from King Saul, who went and tried to hunt him down to kill him. He was hiding in caves, just trying to stay alive. And then at the proper time, David was exalted to be king. And he brought uh, peace and security for the land. We, we could add more about the prophet the prophecies, and uh, especially the prophet of Isaiah. Uh, the, the New Testament authors look to Isaiah 53, which talks about a servant who will be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. But also this same servant is to be despised and rejected by men, crushed for the iniquities of his people, cut off from the land of the living. And so there is this pattern, this pattern that you see in many of the people of the Old Testament, in the prophecies that are made that the ones who bring deliverance for God first suffer rejection, persecution, and then are exalted. Look how uh, Stephen ends his speech. He gives this whole big history, and then he looks the people he's talking to right in the face, and he says this. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So look, your, your fathers, your forefathers, they persecuted these people 
who predicted the sufferings of Christ, and now you have rejected the righteous one. You have rejected Jesus. And yet Stephen doesn't end there. His very final words is not of Jesus' rejection, but of Jesus' exaltation. In verses 55 and 56, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So all throughout the Old Testament, there is this pattern, this pattern that is repeated and escalated and finds its climax in the person of Jesus. What was true of others will be true of Jesus. But what does Jesus' rejection and exaltation actually do? You know, Joseph, he brought salvation from famine. Moses brought salvation out of slavery. David brought salvation in the sense of protection from God's people. What does Jesus do? Well, again, back in Luke chapter 24, as Jesus sits down and explains the scriptures to his disciples, he tells them exactly what it does. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So, guys, remember Luke 18, you know, where I told you about all this stuff? This is, this is important. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and, and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus' suffering and his rising from the dead means that repentance for the forgiveness of sins can be proclaimed. Jesus has actually done something on the cross. His rejection is not just simply a rejection, but is a rejection by which all people may have their sins forgiven. As he justly takes on all of the wrath of God that human beings deserve, he takes that upon himself so that the punishment we deserve does not need to go to us, but it goes to Christ so that simply by faith and believing in him, our sins can be forgiven. We do not need to have the guilt or shame of our sins laid upon us, for it's laid upon Jesus. And if we would repent to turn from our sins, to trust in him, that forgiveness of sins will actually be ours. So as we, we look through the Old Testament, we see that this, the story of, of Joseph, for instance, is not the story of a guy, you know, going to prison unjustly and then, uh, you know, being exalted to the right hand of, of Pharaoh. That, that, that is not just a story where we learn, you know what, if bad things are happening to you, just be patient. God has good things in store. That's not the point of the story of Joseph, the point of the story of Joseph is that ultimately there is going to come one who is the ultimate righteous one, who is ultimately unjustly accused, sent to, not to the prison of Egypt, but to the prison of death, so that he might be exalted to the right hand, not of the Pharaoh, but of God. Moses is not just a, a story that God, through this one man, delivers his people from slavery and makes himself a new nation. It is a story of how God is going to use the ultimate redeemer to bring his people out of their slavery to sin, to make a new people for himself who will fill the earth with his glory. The story of King David is not just that he provides protection from the enemies around him, but that Jesus, he, he defeated Satan's sin and death so that there will be protection for all of eternity for his people in the new and heavenly kingdom. See, all the Old Testament 
it is not just there to teach us principles or morals. It, it does do that. It does teach us about who God is. It does teach us about who we are. But ultimately, finally, it is meant to teach us about what Jesus has done, what he has accomplished, and who he is. These are real-life stories that God has sovereignly orchestrated in order to help us see the person and work of Jesus better. And so, as, as we read through the Old Testament, you might be saying, though, well, that, that sounds a bit difficult, David. Like, sounds like if I'm reading this, it sounds like I need to know my Bible really well in order to, like, understand how all this fits together. Yes, you, you need to understand your Bible. That's why we should grow in this. Uh, I'll be honest, there's lots of things. You know, we don't want to be people as a church that just kind of stick to the, you know, the, the front, you know, quarter of our Bible or the back quarter of our Bible, just the New Testament. There are so much riches in the Old Testament of who Jesus is. What has he done? It foreshadowed in these patterns and types. But we need to be able to see it. We need to know the Old Testament well. And it's going to help us understand their New Testament better. It's going to help us understand who Jesus is in a more full and complete way. And so you may be saying, well, how do I, how do, I do that, David? I mean, you, you can start by reading. But also, can I just recommend one thing to you? I know I recommend a lot of stuff. Can I recommend this podcast to you? Okay, uh, this, it's a podcast called Bible Talk. And it is amazing, right? See, some, some of you listen. Uh, it, it's great. All they do in it. Uh, is there's uh, three guys on the podcast, they're all pastors, and they just walk through the Bible. That's it. They just take like two or three chapters of the Bible, and they just, in like 40 minutes, half an hour, they just explain it, and they just walk through it bit by bit. But what these guys do so masterfully, and I don't agree with everything they say, but they so wonderfully connect how everything in the Bible connects to Jesus, how it connects to one another, how the, the writers of the Bible are, are purposely bringing back things that have, we have seen before and earlier and building on them and how this ultimately climaxes in Jesus. So if you are like, I want to know more, I want to understand my Bible better, can I just recommend to you, go read the two or three chapters that they're going to talk about, read it first, and then listen to the podcast. And then go read the next chapter, listen to the podcast. And you will just see yourself growing in not only your love for God's word, but in your ability to understand and apply it with the rest of your Bible reading, giving you the tools of this is how I can learn and understand the scriptures. So, the second point was what was true of others will be true of Jesus. Here's the last thing I want us to see. What was true of Jesus will be true of us. See, there is this pattern, this pattern throughout the whole Old Testament that we see kind of ultimately in Jesus, but the pattern does not stop there. The pattern continues for those who are followers of Jesus. There, there is a pattern, just like Jesus, that we are called to suffer, that we are called to be rejected. The pattern of Jesus is the pattern for those who follow Jesus. Uh, the scriptures are quite clear about this. Uh, John 15, verse 20, is one example. Uh, Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Paul writes in, in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We see that even in the early church, the story of Stephen. Here's a guy 
who is bold about his faith and in so doing is persecuted even to the point of death. We see it all throughout church history. Many people who have been faithful to Jesus has meant that they have endured much persecution and suffering and rejection from the culture and the people around them. To follow Jesus means also to follow in his suffering. So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens in our life. What is true of Jesus will be true of those who follow him. There's some of you who are not surprised because you experience this all the time. You have, you have really difficult relationships with people, family, friends, where to stand firm for what you believe, to hold to Jesus, it is hard. It is hard. Some of us don't know yet. Our, 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 our life is, is fairly simple, but just know that it, it will come. Jesus promises it will come. And whether that means that we need to actually press into that, we need to take stands on difficult things and not shy away, whether it means that we are going to one day need to act in in different ways than those around us, say different things than those around us, we shouldn't be surprised. Persecution, suffering, rejection, it's always been what's happened to God's people. It's what happened to Jesus, and it will be what happens to us. And so I, I get that this is difficult. Like to, to say, yeah, to follow Jesus means to sign up for his sufferings, to sign up for his rejection. How, how do we actually live this out? It, it, is, a, it is a tough calling. Uh, just two things I want us to remember. Uh, two things that we can remember. Uh, the first is that we look at Jesus' heart for us. We look at Jesus' heart for us. What I mean is, if, if you look at this passage here, uh, Jesus begins by saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. When Jesus says he's going to Jerusalem, he doesn't just mean, you know, I'm going to an important city. I'm going to New York, or I'm, I'm going to Washington, or Ottawa. When Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, he knows exactly what is going to happen to him there. Uh, Jesus talks about Jerusalem in Luke 13. He says, this is the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus knows all that the prophets have said, and he knows they're going to be accomplished. And here's the thing. He still goes. He still goes. E- even though he knows exactly what he's walking into. Right? When you and I, when we know that there are difficult situations and circumstances, and we know if we, okay, if we go through that door, if we do that thing, it's going to be difficult, we, we tend to shy back. We tend to say, okay, is there another way? If there's something that's going to be hard, it's going to be painful, it's going to be difficult, we don't usually keep walking that direction. But Jesus, he presses into it. He continues to walk towards Jerusalem, knowing exactly what is waiting for him there. It's not just he's going to Jerusalem and there's a chance, you know what, something bad might happen, Jesus. He knows. He knows that he'll be mocked. He knows he'll be flogged. He knows he will experience the most painful, torturous death known to mankind at that time. He knows all the while the people who opposed him and his teaching will be laughing and spitting on him. And he still goes. He still goes. No one forced him. There's no gun to his head. 
But he went. He went. Why? Because it was not for his sake, but it was for ours. See, he went because there was a greater purpose, a greater mission behind what he was doing to bring about salvation for his people. See, when we see Jesus' heart, we see that every step he took towards Jerusalem, it was a step of sacrificial love. It was a step where he was showing, yes, I'm headed towards what is hard, is difficult. I know exactly what's there. But my love for my people is greater. The author of Hebrews, he encourages us to do this in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, we can be looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This brings us really to the second thing I want us to see. And that is there this promise of exaltation at the end. You see here, Jesus exalted to the right hand of God. Uh, even in our text, you see uh, Jesus knows, yes, that he will suffer, that he will die. But there's something else he knows. It says that he will be killed and on the third day he will rise. So, so Jesus, he endures suffering, he endures death, he endures persecution. Why? Because he knows the resurrection is on the other side. So to us. We endure suffering, persecution, all of that, because we know there's a resurrection on the other side. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not just a resurrection for him. The, the, the scriptures speak clearly that Jesus' death is our death. We died with him when we put our faith in him so that our sin put to death by his death. But his resurrection is our resurrection, that we too will one day be raised with Jesus to the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, look at 2 Corinthians 4. It says, he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us to you, or bring us with you into his presence. 2 Timothy, Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So there, there is a hope for us of our resurrection. That is one of the things that I think propels Jesus towards his suffering and persecution because he knows resurrection on the other side. We have that same hope. Jesus' death and resurrection has made that hope sure for us. We have something we can hold on to, something we can look to in the midst of the hardships of persecution. I get it. Being persecuted is difficult. Being rejected is hard. Losing relationships, it's heartbreaking. But there's one thing that we can hold on to, and that is, in the end, it will be okay. In the end, it will be okay. And I don't mean it will be okay in this life, because it probably won't but I know that it will be okay in the next. There will be a resurrection where all that is wrong and sinful and hurtful is gone, that every tear is wiped from our eye and that we will live forever with our Savior. That is the hope that we can hold on to. This life is not all there is. 
So what was true of others? It will be true of Jesus. And what was true of Jesus? His suffering and his resurrection? It will be true of us. Let me pray. Father, we just thank you for the undeserved mercy and grace you've given us through Jesus. That we have a hope of eternal life with you. Oh Lord, give us strength in the midst of our sufferings, in the persecutions we face now or will face in the future. Lord, help us hold deeply onto you and the hope of the resurrection. We pray now, give us strength. In Jesus' name, amen.